Any of you seen that movie, City Slickers? It's a bit of an old one now, but it uh, tells the story of basically a bunch of city slickers who go through a midlife crisis. Uh, Billy Crystal, particularly uh, the star of it, his character, goes through a period of life where he's just wondering, what on earth is this life all about? And he looks around his job and his possessions and his house and his car and he thinks, well, what's it all add up to? So he goes off with a few mates to be a cowboy for a while, uh, ride the range, herd cattle, crack whips, sort of to try and find himself. And then you reach this point in the movie where Billy Crystal sort of comes to feel as if he understands what life is all about and he excitedly tells his friends, says to his friends, hey, do you want to know what the secret of life is? The secret of life is this. And he holds up one single index finger. It's one thing. You have the one thing and everything else is secondary. Now, Billy Crystal doesn't actually say what the one thing is. That's not his point. His point is that as long as you have a one thing, it doesn't really matter what it is. As long as you've got something that's central in your life and that you fit everything around, then life will make sense. If you've got a one thing, life has a direction, it has a purpose. The secret of life is having a one thing. Friends, what's your one thing? What is the thing in your life that you fit everything else around? What's the most important thing to you? What do you value most? Honestly, your family? In a recent survey, 68% of people rated family life as the most important issue to them in their life. That's what they shape everything else around. What about job? Your job, is that what you make your decisions around? Is where you live, how you live, your lifestyle, is that basically determined by your job? Maybe it's your health, politics, clothes, money, education, entertainment, having good self-esteem. What, what is it for you? What is it that takes virtually priority over everything else in your life? Now, in the Bible passage that Jackie just read to us, Jesus says a very provocative thing. He actually says that unless you have the right one thing, then your life will be a waste of time. That is very different to the Billy Crystal version of life in that movie. He reckoned it didn't really matter what your one thing was. Life will make sense as long as you've just got one. Uh, Jesus says that's not right. In that passage we just heard, Jesus said, you can have everything actually, you can have the whole world, you can have the family, you can have the money, you can have the career, you can have the health, you can have the four-wheel drive, you can have the nice house, it can all be yours. But unless you have the correct one thing in your life, unless you have lived your life with the correct priority, it's all going to be a waste and you will lose your soul. And all you will have to look forward to for eternity is pain and loneliness. Now that is a very in-your-face thing to say. And it begs the question, well, what does Jesus reckon is the correct one thing to have? What, according to Jesus, is the priority we ought to have in life? That's what we're looking at tonight, uh, this morning, in Mark chapter 8. And it's a passage which takes us to a very critical and pivotal moment in Mark's Gospel. See, now, if you've been... 
gospel, where we've been trying to get this broad overview of how the book fits together. And as such, we've uh, discovered that Mark's gospel actually has a fairly obvious pattern to it in the way it's put together. Last week, I put this slide up, and here it is again. That, in a nutshell, is Mark's gospel. The first eight chapters are essentially this prolonged build-up all about who Jesus is. And in that first section, you get heaps and heaps of miracles happening as Jesus shows just what he's capable of doing. And last week, you might remember, we saw how those miracles occur in little clumps so as to give us this ever-growing picture of just the enormity of Jesus' power, that he is someone with astonishing authority, that he's someone with more authority than anyone else. Heck, he's got the authority of God himself. And then in chapter 8, after building this massive picture of Jesus' authority, in chapter 8 there is a sudden unexpected twist. A very big surprise occurs. And it's a surprise that's going to dominate the second half of the book. Now that's Mark's gospel in a nutshell. Big build-up, big surprise. And so you can see that this morning we're at that centre turning point. We're at the unexpected twist. And it's a twist that's made up of a surprising miracle followed by a surprising conversation. Firstly, let's have a look at the miracle. Verse 22. They came to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand, led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes and then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Now, friends, do you get the surprise factor of that miracle? Jesus actually has to have two goes at healing this bloke, doesn't he? Now, that's surprising. That's an interesting development. That's not happened before. Usually, Jesus just has to say the word and miracles just happen. In fact, in the previous chapter, Jesus healed a deaf and dumb per, uh, person, again by spitting, not the most hygienic thing I know, and yet in chapter 7, he healed a deaf and dumb bloke that way in one go. And yet here in this surprising miracle, he has to have two goes. The first attempt doesn't seem to fully take. The guy can see, but not all that clearly. People look like trees. Now, why is that? What is going on here? Has Jesus met his match? Is this disease a particularly tough one? Uh, that seems unlikely. Jesus has done heaps more powerful things in the gospel already. I mean, this is a guy who's brought a child back to life just by speaking. Uh, he's already done in chapter 5, he's walked on water. This is a person who's calmed storms. This is a person who's fed thousands of people with just a couple of fish. And so you would think restoring someone's eyesight would be a walk in a park for, for someone with this amount of authority. Indeed, in chapter 10, he will heal another blind man, a bloke named Bartimaeus, and he'll do that in one simple action. What's going on here? Well, Jesus is choosing to deliberately heal this man in two goes because he wants to make a point. He is deliberately doing it this way so as to symbolise something. Now, Jesus is very creative and he will often do that in the Gospels. A bit later on, uh, Jesus is going to curse a fig tree on the way into Jerusalem and he does that to symbolise the curse that's going to fall on Israel. Jesus does that sort of thing. He does a miracle in a particular way so as to symbolise something, so as to draw attention to a, to, a, to a certain lesson. 
wonder what the lesson here is. Well, if we keep reading, we'll discover. So just file that surprising miracle in the back of your mind for a moment and let's keep reading to a surprising conversation that develops. Verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi and on the way he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah and still others, one of the prophets. Now Elijah and John the Baptist, they're both pretty important people in Jewish history and some people thought that Jesus was one of them come back from the dead. Uh, John the Baptist, you see, has been assassinated earlier on in the gospel. There's clearly a lot of confusion around about Jesus. Not much has changed nowadays. But here in Mark, uh, Jesus presses the point because he wants to clear up any confusion that his own disciples might have. Verse 29. What about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? Now, friends, as we keep reading, we are going to discover that that very simple six-word question, that is massive. The question from Jesus. Who do you say I am? Notice that it's not, what does the person next to you say that I am? Not, who does your Christian friend think that Jesus is? Not, what does your church reckon about Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? Because as we keep reading, we're going to discover that a lot rides on your personal answer to that question. Verse 29, Jesus answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Now that statement, you are the Christ, is a very big call for Peter to be making. Uh, We tend to skip over it because we think, what's the big deal here? Of course he's the Christ, that's his name, Mr J Christ, that's how he signs his tax form. But Christ here, of course, is not his name, it's his occupation, it's his title. In the Bible, the Christ is someone of incredible importance who's been predicted for hundreds and hundreds of years. The Christ was predicted as someone who's going to come and rule the world. The Christ was God's appointed king who would come and set up a kingdom that would last forever. And so in his answer here, Peter is saying that this person standing in front of him is the ruler of the entire world. Peter, who do you reckon I am? Jesus, you're the king of the world. Jesus, you have the right to tell me how to live my life. That's a big statement. But brace yourself, because here comes the big twist. Here comes the thing which no one saw coming. We see it as Jesus clarifies Peter's answer, verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man, which is Jesus' favourite way of talking about himself, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, friends, do you see what's happening here? Jesus has just been rightly identified as the ruler of the world. Peter has rightly named Jesus as God's appointed king. And now Jesus turns around and says, I am, and by the way, I'm I'm going to be killed. Friends, that does not make sense. Jesus is here sounding like a loser rather than a winner. How can someone with the authority of Jesus be killed? How can someone like that? He just has to snap his fingers and he can just about vaporise anyone who wants to have a go at him. Peter doesn't get it. He basically tells Jesus to snap out of it, doesn't he? Get get a hold of yourself, man. You are the Christ. No one's going to kill you. 
You're the one with all the power. You're the one with all the authority. You're the one who gets to destroy your enemies, not vice versa. And Jesus turned and looked at his disciples and he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And friends, it is at this moment that that surprising miracle should bounce back into our heads. Because remember the miracle? The bloke who was blind could see, but at first he couldn't see very clearly. That's Peter. He too is a person who can see, sort of. He can see that Jesus is the Christ, but he cannot see clearly enough. He has not twigged to the sort of Christ that Jesus will be. For Jesus is a Christ, he is a king who has come not to be served, but to serve. And to serve in a most surprising way, by dying for his subjects. Or more precisely, by sacrificing himself for his subjects. And look, of course, many of us understand that, don't we? Many of us here, we know that when King Jesus was rejected and killed, as he described here, he was doing that in our place. That when all that was happening, Jesus was taking a punishment for things that we've done wrong. And that even though we deserve the punishment, Jesus took it in our place. And so, friends, the danger for us is that because we've heard all of this stuff before, we fail to feel the surprise of it or the enormity of it. This twist to Mark's gospel, it is breathtaking. If you were reading this for the first time, you would never see this one coming as evidenced by Peter's reaction that someone with the apparent limitless power limitless authority that someone with the presence and the grandeur and the status and the importance of Jesus that that he would sacrifice himself for someone else that's not how the world works the usual way this world works is that the more important someone is then the more everyone else has to serve them. Just look at the inconvenience being thrust on Sydney this week with the APEC conference. That's the way the world works. Normal citizens have to change their routines so as to suit world leaders. Yet here is the world leader. Here is the Christ, God's King, and he has come so as to be inconvenienced for us so as to be mocked and rejected and killed for us. That is an amazing twist. And the implications are enormous. In one sense, it's going to take the rest of the gospel to spell out all the implications of this, of just the sort of Christ that he is. Yet one very clear implication, Jesus immediately wants to hammer home. Verse 34. And then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said... If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Now in that sentence, Jesus does not pull any punches about just how important he thinks he is. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. See, Jesus reckons that if he's a Christ who's come to be rejected and killed, if he's the Christ who's come to sacrifice himself for his people, then he deserves nothing less than all of us. Look at the phrases in that, in that verse. 
Deny yourself. In other words, Jesus expects his followers to, de- to, to renounce themselves, to disown themselves, to abandon their own needs, their own desires, to abandon them in preference to him. And look at the extent, deny themselves and take up his cross. It's not a common phrase nowadays, but back then people would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about. Taking up your cross was marching off to your death. And so Jesus is saying that he expects that if you reckon you're a Christian, you are to be prepared to abandon your own plans and your own agendas to the extent that you will be prepared to follow him even if it costs you your life. That is a very in-your-face thing to say. And if that's not enough, look at the little word in that verse, must. If anyone would come after me, if anyone wants to be a follower of me, you must. Not, would you mind doing? Not, I'd like you to think about this. Not, this is an optional extra for the missionaries among us. You must deny yourself and take up a cross. Do you reckon you're doing that? Really? Because Jesus goes on to explain that you'd be crazy not to. Verse 35. For, here's the reason, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? In one sense, all those sentences are saying pretty much the same thing. They're saying that nothing in this world compares to what can be gained from following Jesus. And you'd be crazy not to follow him. Because, you see, the money, the job, the nice home, the car, even the supportive family, Jesus Christ, the King of the world, says you can have it all. And unless you have followed him you will lose your soul. And that is just not worth it. It's because, of course, that the money and the cars and the family, none of them will actually help you to be friends with God. When you stand before God, he will be utterly unimpressed by the number of bedrooms your house has. He will be utterly unmoved by the sort of car you drove. He will be utterly unmoved by, in fact, how supportive your family was. None of those things will wipe clean the punishment that you and I deserve for our attitude of ignoring God. Only Jesus the Christ who came to be rejected and killed, only he can wipe our lives clean before God. And therefore there is absolutely nothing in this life worth putting ahead of Jesus Christ. To live for anything other than him is just not worth it. For Jesus is the one thing. He is the one thing we must put everything else around in our life. For what good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Friends, it's a big twist in Mark's Gospel. I wonder if it brings a big twist to our lives as well. Because a passage like this is saying that the way we live suddenly is turned upside down because lots of the things that the world keeps telling us is important, suddenly they turn out to be not very important at all. A couple of years back, uh, an Australian uh, computer tycoon, Christopher Dawes, 
was throwing a dinner party at uh, his lavish mansion in, uh, in England. Between courses, Dawes took his guest on a tour of the estate and his collection of 30 luxury cars. Eight million dollar jet, two large power boats, a helicopter. And it was all so much that one of the guests actually remarked to him, uh, Chris, you have, you've just got such a wonderful life. You have got so much to enjoy. 36 hours later, Christopher Dawes dies instantly, died instantly, when his $1.5 million McLaren F1 sports car ran out of control, smashed into a tree, burst into flames. And Jesus says, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? What's your one thing? It's got to be Jesus. I'll pray. Father, thank you that your son is a Christ who came to suffer, be rejected and even die for us. Father, we pray that we would follow him in a way in which we put all things else behind him. Father, help us to deny ourselves, even to the point of death if need be, so that Jesus would be number one in our life. Father, we'd like to ask that by your word and spirit you would shape us so that we would so follow Jesus with complete and utter dedication. Father, we want to thank you for a church family where we can help each other do this and that we would help each other stay accountable to the task of following your precious son. Thank you that he is the Christ. Thank you that he is the Christ who died for his subjects. Amen.